Thank you, Josh. Good morning, church family. So good to see you uh, this morning. Uh, this is a bit of a milestone uh, Sunday for us, uh, March 2022. And uh, the mask mandate was lifted in the province of Ontario, and then a few days later in the city of uh, Mississauga. And some are choosing to still wear masks, and that's totally fine. Uh, we're just this is our this is our first Sunday in over two years where uh, we're sort of free from uh, any sort of uh, any sort of restriction. So we can celebrate that and thank the Lord uh, for that. Amen. Man, one of the occupational hazards uh, that come from working at uh, Hope Church is, is that uh, you uh, belong to this, uh, this, this church family that uh, produces such beautiful sounds. And uh, the musicians and the congregation joining uh, in song, you can't help but sing with all your, all your heart. And then you're, when you get through one service, and then you, you're in, you're like my voice is almost, almost gone. And um, that got me thinking just as I was coming up here that uh, through the last two years, you know, this is sort of a milestone for us, but there have been lots of big steps of faith and lots of effort that has been put in by our audiovisual team and by our uh, worship team. And I don't know about you, but like my photos app every once in a while, like they, they take you to something like two years ago or three years ago. And I, my, my photo app this week took me to, it was, you know, Stan and Anthony and, and the Doors brothers. They were here with cameras and like Jameson was up and there was no one in the auditorium and that's what church looked like. And then remember Jameson and Taylor were recording things in, in their auditorium, I'm sorry, not their auditorium, their living room, which became uh, an auditorium and and leading worship passionately to 50 people or to zero people. Um, can we just take a moment to express our gratitude to those faithful servants that have led us in worship? Amen. Amen. And here in person and online, we want to help you worship in the most holistic way. We're not just supposed to lift our voices. Our hearts belong to Christ. We're to offer our bodies as a, as a living sacrifice. And so if there's something that's on your heart, we would love to hear from you. You can use the app, uh, the Church Center app, or scan the QR code on your phone in front of you. Or if you're old school like me and want to use a paper, you can do that. The most streamlined way is to do it electronically. But let let us know how we can be praying for you. Another way of worshiping holistically is through our regular giving of tithes and offerings to the Lord. Again, you can use the app for that, or you can use the envelopes and the offering box at, at the very back. You know, as we uh, look back on uh, two years since uh, uh, what we thought was just going to be one year, or what we thought was just going to be two weeks to flatten the curve, as, as we look back on the last uh, two years... Uh, we've learned a lot about ourselves. We've learned a lot about uh, our church. We've learned a lot about our country. We've learned a lot about politics. We've learned a lot about medicine. We've learned a lot about family dynamics. If there was one sort of small benefit of all of these lockdowns, it was that families started eating together again. Uh, statistically speaking, in North America, only about 30% of families where, where you've got a mom and a dad and children ate together around a, a dinner table regularly. And COVID kind of forced families to start doing that, not just dinner, but also breakfast and lunch, because for a time there, no one was even going out of their house. 
And studies have shown that families that eat together regularly, uh, the students do better in school, that family normally saves uh, more, uh, more money and is doing better uh, financially. There's, there's better physical health, there's better mental health, there's better relational uh, ha- harmony. This has, been st- this has been scientifically proven for, for decades. That's a good thing for families uh, to meet together. Now, the hard thing has been the broader family gatherings, having the aunts and uncles come over and the cousins and the grandma and the grandpa and celebrating the milestone birthday or, or Thanksgiving. And we had to get creative, but it's just not the same on Zoom, right? And if the weather permits, you can maybe do these things outside, but it's just not the same of being all under one roof, all around one table and a couple of card tables and a, a couple of, you know, Everyone gathered around together. We've missed that, haven't we? And God's heart as our Father is to bring us together around a table. And he has given us something. It's called the Lord's Supper. Something to remind us that he is our Father and that we're brothers and sisters who are a part of the same family. H.B. Charles describes it in this way. He says, the Lord commands us to practice communion, to make an important point about our salvation. God did it all. We have not earned the right to come to the Lord's table. We have been graciously invited by God to come because of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. So come to the Lord's table to worship God for adopting us into his family through the agency of the cross of Jesus Christ. You and I are invited to this family meal. The church at Corinth was invited to this family meal. Now as you heard a Josh reading our passage today, you probably recognized a number of words that we use to talk about the Lord's Supper. In fact, just about every title, no matter what denomination or what background you come from, all of the titles the church uses for communion are found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11. Let me show you. The word communion, that's what we normally use here at Hope Church. That is the Latin translation of the word participation in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. We sometimes call it the Lord's table. That's from chapter 10, verse 21. The Lord's Supper, chapter 11, verse 20. Some denominations call it the Eucharist, which is the word for thanks. It says that Jesus gave thanks in chapter 11, 24. And, And some churches call it the breaking of bread service. That's taken right from chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, where we remember, when we take the bread in our hands and the cup in our hands, we remember Christ's body and Christ's blood. Now, the title for today's message is called Discerning the Body. And, and like what Paul so often does, Paul loves to use a play on words. He, he loves to use one word in one context to mean one thing. And then he loves to use the same word in a different context. Remember last week when, when Paul was talking about the woman's head being covered and then the head of, uh, in her life being her husband and that authority relationship. Or the man's head being uncovered, but Christ being the head of all. Paul in this passage uses the word body in that way. 
That when we take the bread, we remember the body of Christ. We remember the incarnation. It's about Christology. That Christ came and dwelt in human flesh as real as the bread we're holding in our hands. So Christ came in the flesh. But then he uses the same word body not to talk about the body of Christ. He's, he's not talking about Christology. He's talking about ecclesiology, the study of the church. That we are one body, one loaf. And that's what he's going to get into in chapter 12, right? The famous passage where the, you know, the eye can't say to the foot that I'm better than you because we're part of one body. Paul here is encouraging the church that when we remember Christ's body with the bread, we need to remember that we ourselves are Christ's body. Now, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 11 and look at verse 2, he started by saying, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. He was commending them. He's saying, you know what? On the most part, you guys are doing a good job. But look at verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. So, Paul here is, is not pleased with what has been going on at the church at Corinth in the way that they celebrate the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or Eucharist or communion or the breaking of bread. He can't commend them. And what we're going to see as Paul is addressing this problem, he's going to rebuke them. And then he's going to remind them about what communion is actually about. And then he's going to encourage them to to respond. So we're going to see a, a rebuke, a reminder, and a response. The first thing we're going to see is the rebuke. Uh, here's point number one, the problem of division. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Paul takes a look at how communion is happening in their worship services, and he says, it actually would have been better for you just to stay home. It's not, you know, good try. <laughs> Here's a couple of small tweaks to improve something. No, he says it's, it, it's, it's worse. The way that you are doing communion is worse. Maybe you've had a family dinner like that where you're just sort of like, maybe we all just should have stayed home, right? Every family has issues. So we, we all, we've all had those kind of meals where everything just seems to go Wrong. It could be in the culinary category. It could be in the relationship category. It could be in the behavior, childhood behavior category, whatever it may be. It could be adulthood behavior category. Sometimes we have those meals, and hopefully they're not too frequent. We're just like, maybe we should have just stayed home. Paul says, when it comes to communion and the way you guys are behaving, it's, it's actually making it worse, not better. Now, this is unique for Paul. All throughout the book of Corinthians, right? He's been, yes, but... He's, he's taken two perspectives and he's had something positive to say about this group and then something positive to say about that group. And every time he gives a correction, he's also giving an affirmation. He's been subtly and carefully addressing all of the complicated nuances in every circumstance. It's always been, yes, but... But this one's been, no... No, 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 no. He can't commend them. He has, he has nothing but a rebuke for them. 
In verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe that in part. Paul's been talking about divisions right from the beginning. Chapter 1, is Christ divided? And they were divided over leadership. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. They were divided over what to do with marriage and sexuality. They were divided over food sacrifice to idols. They were divided over all of these things. All of these things were tearing the church apart. Paul says it's necessary, though, for there to be divisions. Look at verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul says sometimes disagreement is good. Because in in a disagreement, you actually get to figure out who's right. Two plus two equals four. And if, if there's ever any disagreement, if someone says, no, I think it's five, or I think it's three, or I think it's 337... Then, then there's clarity given where people can say, no, this is what's genuine. It's two plus two equals four. And so when there are divisions in the church, it can actually clarify who is a genuine believer. Now, churches can agree to disagree on some of these secondary and tertiary issues, these less important issues. But on the most important issues about who Christ is and the centrality of the cross... Those kind of divisions are good because it clarifies who's in and who's out. Who's a true believer and who isn't. Now, how do you demonstrate if you're a genuine believer, like verse 19? It's not just that you have the truth, right? It's that you know how to react in the midst of conflict. You know how to consider the interests of others. So the genuine believer is genuine because they have the truth, but they're also genuine because they actually know how to handle interpersonal conflict and disagreement. So Paul says division's not all bad because it actually clarifies some things. Verse 20, though, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Let me show you this verse on the screen here. So the Lord's Supper and his own meal. Now this doesn't come through in our uh, English translations, but the word for supper and the word for meal, it's the same word. That shouldn't be surprising. Uh, uh, the, word, the Greek word is dipnon. So he talks about the kurion dipnon, which is the, the Lord's Supper. Kurion is Lord. Kyrios is Lord. But then he talks about the idion dipnon, his, his own supper. Idion is where we get our word for idiot. What makes someone an idiot? An idiot is someone who only thinks about themselves. Id means self. An idiot is someone who is only focused on themselves. Paul says, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, it's not, it's not, it's not the Lord's Supper, it's an idiot supper. <laughs> You're focused on your... Now, idiot was not an insult in those days. That's our vernacular. But it's a selfish gathering. You're not gathering to focus on Jesus. You're gathering to fulfill your own desires. He goes on in verse 21. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. One... Some people aren't even allowed to share in the food or don't get a chance to share in the food while others are eating and drinking so much. Paul says that some of them are getting... Now, I don't know if, this, if Paul's exaggerating here or if, if this was actually happening, but I mean, it is Corinth after all, right? Like, you know, the body's for food and, and, and the food is for stomach and all things are permissible. You can imagine that this might actually have happened. 
But there's a division. Some people have access to all of the food. And some people don't have access to it at all. Paul, in verse 22, he just says, what? He's like, what? He's sharply rebuking them. And then he hits them with four rhetorical questions. Do you not have houses to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. He asked them, don't you have houses to eat in? Couldn't you go and have it? It's not about a big meal. It's not a social gathering. It's not about what you, this shouldn't be about you. It's about Jesus. If you want to have a bunch of your friends over for dinner, have a separate dinner. That can be your dinner. But this is the Lord's Supper. He says that you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. Now churches did not have church buildings in Corinth in those days. And so it was wealthy Christians that invited the whole church to their house. And what scholars understand what was taking place was that in every large uh, Roman home, you had a dining room. It was called the triclinium. And they had cushions on the floor. There's no tables and chairs. And, and you would lean on the cushion, sort of lie down, and the table would be in the middle. If you've ever been to an Ethiopian restaurant, that's kind of the closest thing. And that was happening in the triclinium. And, and so you could only seat about 10 or 15 people in the triclinium. And then you had a broader atrium, which was like the foyer. And there was a pool in there and there was no furniture. And so all of the other members of the church were outside in the atrium. Now who could get in the triclinium? Those who didn't have to work. They could come early because they were wealthy. They were independently wealthy. So they were the ones inside the triclinium. They were the ones bringing the food and enjoying it. And then the, the, the people that had to work late because they were slaves or they were workers, they were left out in the atrium. And sometimes all the food was gone. And, and these, the, the ones were, there was nothing to, they had nothing to hold in their hands to remember the body of Christ. They had nothing to drink to remember the blood of Christ. Paul says in verse 22, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? In the same way that in Christ, a woman was free to pray with her head uncovered. She's not safe. She's not going to heaven based off a hat. She was free, but Paul said, yes, you're free to cast off those cultural symbols, but just take a minute and think about how your husband would process that. Think about how the broader church and the broader culture would think about your husband in light of you praying with your head uncovered. In the same way, the rich were free to bring food. They were free to, to have their friends over to their house. They were free, but at the Lord's table, in exercising that freedom, think about what they were doing to those members of the church that had less. Do you see how these, how these two instructions that Paul is giving, how they fit together? How head coverings and the Lord's Supper, how the way women were behaving and how that affected their husbands, and the way the rich were behaving and how that affected those who were poor. 
Paul is saying, no, just stop. Listen, you are free. You are free, but think about others. Loved ones, you are free. After the service today, you are free to make a beeline straight out that door, right out into the parking lot. You are free to just get on with the rest of your day. You're free to do that. But what about the broader body? What about you using your spiritual gift around the foyer and, and helping out with things or encouraging people or, 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 or reaching out to those who are, who are new? Yes, you're free. You're, by all means, you're free. And trust me, if you have an appointment this afternoon, no one's going to judge you. The ushers aren't going to tackle you on the way out. If you have to get to somewhere, there's no judgment. You're free. But do you need to exercise that freedom? Or should you consider the broader body of Christ. You're free immediately after this service to head over to your spot in the foyer and, and talk to the members of your small group and the people that you knew you've known for years and years and years. You're free only to talk to your friends at this church. But again, should we lay aside those freedoms and be on the lookout for those who are brand new to our church? And to try to reach out to them and to welcome them and to include them. You see, the rich, they had these freedoms. And Paul is saying, but the way you're exercising them, it's, it's, it's not for the better. It's for the worse. It's actually creating a division between the classes a division between socioeconomics within the church. And the whole point is coming together as one body. So he rebukes the problem of division. Then he gives them a reminder, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The purpose of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, that's where we get the word Eucharist from, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Some theologians teach wrongly that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant this is my body. But his body, namely his hand, was holding the bread. When Jesus said, I am the door, he didn't mean he was literally a door. When he took the bread and said, this is my body. He didn't mean that the bread was literally his body. It's a symbol. Just like when he says, this cup is the new covenant. The cup isn't the covenant. But sharing in that cup is a symbol of the covenant. Now they are symbols, but it doesn't mean that the symbols are insignificant. Look back at chapter 10 and verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16 it says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That's where we get the word communion from. The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a communion, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Christ is present in a special way when his people gather and take these symbols. There's, there's meaning behind these symbols. We take the bread in our hands and we remember the incarnation. We remember that God the Son took on flesh. That he was born as a, as a little baby. That he came to save us. That in the flesh he lived a perfect life. The life that none of us could live. And that in that same flesh he went to the cross and died the death that all of us deserve to die. 
And he carried our sins in his body on the cross. We remember his body and we remember his blood. In verse 25, it says, In the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He talks about a new covenant. That means that there was an old covenant. What was the old covenant? Well, after God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. He thundered down to them from the cloud the Ten Commandments. The whole nation heard God speak the Ten Commandments to them. Moses then went up the mountain to get the fine print, to get the details on how to follow the Ten Commandments. Moses then comes back down the mountain and he reads to them, he shares with them all of the law. We pick up the story in Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Dangerously overconfident in this moment. This is the same group of people that are going to sin with the golden calf just a matter of weeks later. They're going to break the first commandment and the second. Then they have a sacrifice. Animals are slaughtered. Then Moses does something quite odd. We don't do this in church, thankfully. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. This is the old covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, what was the point of animal sacrifice? This is what happened with, with the Abrahamic covenant as well. Animals get slaughtered. You either walk through the slaughtered animals, or in this case, the blood was thrown on the people. And what is being said, if we don't follow our end of the deal, we deserve to become like these animals. That's the blood of the covenant. We deserve to die if we don't follow the Ten Commandments, if we don't obey God fully. Now, how did that work out? I mean, a matter of weeks later, you have the golden calf. And then you have the whole history in the, uh, in the book of uh, Numbers, wandering through the wilderness. And then the, the chaos of, of the book of Judges after they enter into the promised land. And then First and, first and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and all of the different kings and the ups and downs and all of the sin and all of the dysfunction. And then you have a prophet like Isaiah. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Find Jeremiah. It's after the book of uh, Psalms. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah was a prophet when things were going rapidly downhill. The people had broken the covenant and they were experiencing the consequences of that sin. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31... God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. He's making a promise about a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, notice this, that they broke. The blood of the covenant is on them. They deserve to be punished because they broke the covenant. Though I was their husband, marriage is a covenant relationship. That's how God related to Israel as husband and wife. 
Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Now remember, in the old covenant, Moses went up to get the fine print. He wrote it all down. He read it to the people. The law was something that was exterior. God says, no, 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 there's going to be a new covenant and I'm not going to write it on some book. I'm not going to write it on tablets. I'm going to write it on your heart. It's something totally new. At the end of verse 33, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. Notice this, and I will remember their sin no more. He says, I will remember their sin no more. The, the new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness. Now, I jumped ahead a little bit. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 24. So after Moses throws the blood on the people, look at what happens next. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. What did they see? This is all they saw. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So all they could see was what was under his feet. This, this clear pavement that's right there. That's mentioned again in the book of Revelation in the presence of God before his throne. And it says, and he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Why didn't he lay a hand? Because they were covered in blood. There was atonement for their sin. And so in this unique moment in time, they were actually ushered into the very presence of God. And then look at what happened. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. This was the old covenant in its most perfect form. Then the people broke the old covenant and there was separation from God. But in that, in that initial moment, there were, they were welcomed in the presence of God. And now we in the new covenant, loved ones, are welcomed in. We behold God in Christ. And loved ones, we eat and we drink because we are on good terms with God because our sin has been forgiven. So here's the distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was based off law. If you follow this law, you're going to be okay. It was based off the blood of animals. They, were, they had blood thrown on them. It was based on Israel getting to the promised land. And it was intended only for the people of Israel. It was a specific people in a specific place. And animal sacrifice was at the heart of it and following the law. Now in the new covenant, it's not based off law. It's based off grace. And it's not the blood of animals day after day for all of these sins. No, it's Christ's sacrifice once and for all on the cross for every sin, past, present, and future. And it's not as important as the promised land is. And there will be a new Jerusalem. But it goes, it's bigger than just one little piece of land. It involves the whole planet. And it's not just for Israel, loved ones. It's for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Hallelujah. This is the new covenant. This is what we remember. All of that 
is in that little cup that you hold in your hand. You go all the way back to the book of Exodus. You go all the way forward to the book of Revelation. It's all there in the new covenant in Christ's blood. And everything turns from Exodus to to Revelation. Everything hinges upon Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This ultimate act of selflessness, this ultimate act of being focused on the glory of God and the good of others. And then, let's go back to Corinth. Let's go back to our own sinful desires. Communion, because it's celebrating the selfless sacrifice of Christ, communion needs to be characterized by selflessness in ourselves. Focused on who Christ is. Focused on the glory of God and the good of others. It's the Lord's Supper. It's not ours. So Paul rebukes them. and Then he reminds them, this is what it's about. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You look forward, you proclaim his death until he comes. We believe that he's coming again. So there's a rebuke, there's a reminder, and then lastly, there's a response. There's a response. And if you look closely at verse 28, verse 33 and verse 34, we see Paul gives three imperatives, three commands or instructions to help people prepare. So they've, they've missed it. They've, they've been distracted. They've missed the point of what it relates to communion. And then Paul here says, here's what you need to do. Here's how you make things right. So here's the process for preparation that he outlines. Examine yourself. Wait for and, or share with one another. And eat at home ahead of time. These are the three very practical illustrations, or practical, not illustrations, applications that Paul gives to the church at Corinth and that apply to us as well. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, a misunderstanding of these verses has caused all kinds of unnecessary anxiety in the church for 2,000 years. All kinds of unnecessary anxiety in my own life. We read things about drinking judgment on ourselves. We read about... uh, eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And we substitute the word manner for the word person. And, we, we, and, and then we get back to the judgment idea. And rather than saying, if you, eat the, if you eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of judgment. We think if you eat at the Lord's Supper as an unworthy person, you will experience God's judgment. And like I've done before, and I'm sure like even some people are thinking about even today, even today you're thinking, oh, it's the Lord's Supper, but I know that I'm still struggling with sin. I I know the kind of week that I've had. I'm an unworthy person, and so I'm not going to come forward to receive the Lord's Supper. I'm going to wait until I clean myself up so that I am worthy. Have you ever thought that? Are you thinking that right now? 
Are you thinking that you are, listen, it's an unworthy manner, not an unworthy person. There's a difference. In a little while, we're gonna sing this beautiful hymn called Come Ye Sinners, and it says this, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, which means wait, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. And then he says it again. Not the righteous. But sinners Jesus came to call. What does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? To take it in an unworthy manner is to think that you are a worthy person. That is what it means to take it in an unworthy manner. To think that you are better than other people. That is an unworthy manner, thinking that you are worthy. Loved ones, communion is not here to congratulate the righteous. It is here to comfort the repentant. It's not to congratulate the righteous, but to comfort the repentant. You might think, I, I, don't, I, just, I don't think I'm qualified to take communion. That's the very thing that qualifies you. We're all unworthy. And yes, we do. We have to. It's, we're commanded here to examine ourselves in verse 28. And we must examine ourselves. We must ask God, search me and know me. God, I want to confess all known sin. I want to repent. But here's the thing, loved ones. Repentance isn't just one way. Repentance is not just us making things right with God. If we've sinned against another person, part of repentance is going to that person. Jesus used the analogy of the temple. If you're about to make an offering and you realize you have something against someone or someone has something against you, leave it there. If there is ever a time to not take the Lord's Supper, it's because the Lord convicts you of some sort of disunity between you and another member of your church. And then you go to that person, you make things right. That's what discerning the body is about. We do, we discern the body. We discern the physical body of Christ, but we also discern the church and how we belong to one another. Look over at chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. The unity of the church is what Paul was addressing. We must make sure that we are on good terms with one another. So we must examine ourselves. We must discern the body. It's not just, God, I'm sorry. It might have to be Phil, I'm, I'm sorry. Or Anna, I'm sorry. It, it has to be vertical and horizontal. Then Paul says something quite surprising in verse 30. Normally when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we stop at verse 29, and there's good reason for that, because verse 30 is speaking about a specific, specific situation in Corinth, but that has principles for us uh, to understand and apply. Verse 30 said, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. There was something going on in Corinth, something weird. Paul talked about a present distress earlier in the chapter. Some commentators think that that's what this is about. 
There was, there, was an Ill, there was illness, there was unexplained illness and death in the church in Corinth. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with apostolic authority, says, this is why. Now, we need to be really careful before we do that. That's the whole lesson of the book of Job, right? Sometimes we suffer because of sin, but sometimes we suffer just because it's part of God's plan. And the mistake that Job's friends made was they were convinced that suffering meant Job must be sinning. And we have chapter after chapter of speech after speech of them trying to explain to Job why it's his fault. So we don't do what Paul did because we're going to end up looking like Job's friends. But when we go through a season of suffering, when we're ill, it's a good opportunity for us just to pause and to say, Lord, I... I I ask that you would search me and know me. Are you, are you allowing this to happen in my life to expose some sort of sin in me? And it could be yes, it could be no. Sometimes God uses suffering to reveal sin inside of us because God loves us. And Paul here, he was, a, again, as an apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he could put his finger right on it and say, this is why this is how. He could draw a clear line between the suffering that was happening in the church in Corinth and their sin as it relates to the Lord's Supper. We can't draw those kinds of, those kinds of lines, but we can ask for the Lord's help. In verse 31 and 32, he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He said back in verse 29 that we could drink judgment on ourselves. And then he keeps talking about judged or be judged, judge ourselves, judged by the Lord. And then he uses the word condemned, which is just a compound Greek word with the same word for judgment in there. What is going on here? Why does he keep talking about judgment? Aren't we free from the, from the judgment, from condemnation? Well, in order to understand, so much of understanding Paul's letters is in the little words. Verse 31 has the word but. And then verse 32 also has the word but. And then the word so that. It's those little words that if we understand that, and we see that Paul here is speaking on three levels. Let me show you here in a flowchart. In verse 31, he says, if we judge ourselves, this is doing the self-examination thing that he mentioned in verse 29. If we judge ourselves, and that leads us to repentance, that's great, then things are good. But if we refuse to judge ourselves, if, if pride prevents us from seeing our own sin, that moves us down into the next category where we're judged by the Lord. Now, that's not a judge of damnation or condemnation. It's a judgment he clarifies in verse 32. We're being disciplined. It's, it's a judgment. The aim is to correct us. And if we are judged by the Lord and we're disciplined and we respond rightly, then things are good. It can stop right there. And discipline from the Lord is a good thing. Proverbs chapter, uh, chapter 3 tells us, uh, tells us this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. If you're experiencing discipline, it's proof that you're a child of God. 
Then the author of Hebrews, who quotes Proverbs 3, then he says this in Hebrews 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So let's go back to the, to the flow chart. We can judge ourselves, examine ourselves, and repent. That's good. If we don't do that, God loves us. We're his children. And when he disciplines us as his children, we're going to see that as God's kindness to us. And again, we will repent. But if we don't repent, then we're lumped in with the rest of the world and we're proving that we aren't genuine. If, if we live in persistent unrepentance, then we're proving that we are an unbeliever. That's why it says in verse 32, but when, the, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there is a self-judgment, a self-examination. Then there is God's discipline. And both of those things work to prevent us from the ultimate condemnation. Think back to when you were in elementary school and you were given a math worksheet. And let's say you were in the bad habit of not finishing your math worksheet or not doing a good job. You've been, you've, you've been making some careless errors on your math worksheet. And your teacher says to you, you need to finish your math worksheet before recess. Now, if you examine yourself, you will know how important it is to finish the math worksheet. So if you, if you take care of it yourself, you'll examine the sheet, you'll go out to recess. But if your teacher cares about you, and if you don't get that sheet done, what will the teacher do? The teacher will say, you don't get to go out to recess. The teacher will hold you back from grade two recess. Why? Because the teacher doesn't want to hold you back from grade three. So you, you could either have your own self-control, your own self-examination, get the math sheet done yourself. The, the first consequence is that you miss recess. And the reason why the teacher says you miss recess is because the teacher cares about you and doesn't want you to miss out on going to the next grade with the rest of your friends. Do you follow? That, that is what Paul is outlining in that flow chart. Examine yourself. Be, judge yourselves. Otherwise, God will judge you. But that's discipline. That's like missing recess. So that you would avoid something of far more serious consequence. So that was the first of the practical instructions he gave for preparing the Lord's Supper. Examine yourself. Now look at verse 20, 29. Wait for or share with one another. I'm sorry, it's verse, I, I got the wrong verse there. It's verse 33. Look at verse 33 with me. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Or there's a, a footnote in our Bibles, ESV Bibles, that says, or share with one another. When we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to make sure that we are all contributing to a culture of welcome and inclusion. 
that younger people are interacting with older people, that single people are interacting with married people, that, that families with children and families without children feel at home, that people with different color skin or different ethnic backgrounds, that people with, in Corinth, people with different financial situations, that everyone feels welcome. That's part of us being one Body being a welcoming environment. Again, we are free in Christ. We can walk right out of here. We can only talk to our friends. But if we want to honor the Lord, if we want to reflect what communion truly means, then we must wait for one another or share with one another. And then he gives the final command in verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Some people, I don't know where this came from, this idea that communion is supposed to be this full meal and that we somehow got it wrong with the little cracker and the little, the little cup. And I, I always felt insecure about that because we go, oh, it's supposed to be a meal in the Bible. It's supposed to be. And Paul's like, no, eat at home. If you're hungry, eat, if you're thirsty, eat at home. Communion is not a meal for your stomach. It's a feast for your soul. And and it's, it's a symbolic meal. And so we're told, don't, don't come hungry spiritually, but don't come hungry physically. And then he says, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So that when you come together. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but verse 34, verse 33 Verse 20, verse 18, verse 17, five different times he says when you come together. When you come, to, when you come together, you can't be engaged in activity that is dividing you because you're supposed to come together. And when you come together, you need to make sure that you are together. Wait for one another. Share with one another. And when you come together, discern the body. Am I functioning in a right relationship with the other brothers and sisters in Christ who are members of this church. How do we properly practice the Lord's Supper? This passage gives us really a number of different directions that we can look in. We're told to look back do this in remembrance of me. We remember the cross. We, we remember the historical events between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We look forward until he returns. The, the ultimate marriage supper of, of the Lamb. We look within. We're told to examine ourselves. And we're also supposed to look around and recognize that we're part of the broader body of Christ. This is what we're supposed to do when we come together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the chapter before this, Paul equates the, pa the passing through the Red Sea and eating manna. And he says that's like baptism and that's like communion. And the order is important. The people that ate the manna were the people that went through the Red Sea. The people who are to eat communion are people who have been baptized. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you feel like, well, I, I believe in Jesus, and, and I should be able to participate in this symbol, well, if, you're, if you think you can participate in communion, then you're ready to participate in baptism. It's time to take that first initial step. Baptism is how you get welcomed into the family, and communion is that family meal that we share uh, together. 